This is Bold Dominion, a state politics explainer for a change in Virginia. I'm Nathan Moore. You know, labor union fights don't typically make the top news around Virginia. For decades, Virginia law has made it very difficult for workers to organize into unions and to collectively bargain for contracts. That's especially so for public sector unions, state agencies, cities, counties. Back in the 1940s, black workers at the University of Virginia organized a union. The state government responded by prohibiting state agencies from recognizing public sector unions. Then in 1977, the Virginia Supreme Court confirmed that policy, ruling that public sector collective bargaining was invalid. The General Assembly went on to codify that policy into law in 1993, and Virginia was one of only three states in the whole country that explicitly banned any type of public sector collective bargaining. But the past few years have seen a big shift in Virginia. In 2020, Democrats controlled both houses of the General Assembly, and they voted to repeal that prohibition. Now, cities and counties can choose whether to pass collective bargaining ordinances, and several are doing just that, especially in Northern Virginia. But not so fast. Collective bargaining isn't required across the state, it's just up to localities to decide whether to permit it or not. Plus, the new law itself is pretty vague. It leaves a lot to localities to hammer out much of the rules and framework. Which all means, depending on where in Virginia you live, what you can and can't bargain over can look pretty different. So today on the show, we're looking at the state of public sector unions in Virginia. What does collective bargaining look like for public employees right now? To help answer that, we're joined by three guests today. David Broder is the president of SEIU Virginia 512. That's the union leading the push behind collective bargaining in Northern Virginia and Richmond. We also talked to Albemarle Education Association President Vernon Leichty about how the unionizing process works and the hurdles they can face. But we start off the show with Mel Borja. She's the worker power policy analyst at the Commonwealth Institute. She spoke with Bold Dominion producer Alana Bittner about Virginia's history with unions and what collective bargaining can provide. Collective bargaining is a process, right? So it's a process by which working people join together in unions um, to negotiate contracts with their employers that determine their terms of employment. So those terms can include things like pay, benefits, hours, leave, job, health and safety policies, ways to balance work and family, and, and more. One of the most important things I think to highlight about a collective bargaining is that it's a way to cooperatively solve workplace problems, and it has a much more transformative impact in the workplace than individual employee, employer negotiations. And so like, versus you walking in to the room with your employer and speaking to them there by joining together with your coworkers, you can accomplish a lot more than you could on your own um, because there's power in numbers. Unions mean higher wages for all workers, essentially full stop, right? So in 2021, unionized Virginia workers, wages were over 19% higher on average than their non-union counterparts. And then nationally, union workers' wages are 30% higher on average than their non-union counterparts. That stat alone is remarkable. But also, if you look at the racial demographic breakdown of the union advantage, it shows that collective bargaining has a positive impact on racial equity, right? So white workers represented by unions are paid about 8.7% more than their non-union peers who are white. 
Um, union black workers overall earn, near, earn nearly 13.7% more than their non-union counterparts per year. And then for union um, Latino workers, the national advantage is nearly 20.1%. A lot of this is because the fair and clear standards provided by unionization particularly support black and Latino workers because they're important for raising pay for those who have been historically marginalized and underpaid compared to their le levels of experience and education. There's also been demonstrated data that increases benefits or um, wages for women. So hourly wages for women represented by a union are 5.9% higher and the unions are shown to reduce the gender wage gaps. And so I just wanted to like to share that because I think that there's a perception that like, while this is all well and good, does it actually matter? And the answer is yes. People actually have better wages, among other things, in their workplace as a result of unions. Historically, Virginia has not been a union-friendly state. I was curious if you could give an overview, a bit of an overview of that history. If you look at Virginia labor history, workers have been organizing since the Commonwealth's founding, and they've been organizing across race and ethnicity age, background, and sector. They've organized in the mines of Southwest Virginia. They've organized in the shipyards of Newport News, Starbucks locations in, Le in like Northern Virginia, Leesburg, and Central Virginia, hospitals in Charlottesville, textile factories in Danville, and, and so much more. And I think when we talk about the type of gains that workers have been able to make through that I think it's important to like see that history for what it is. And the, as we talk about like worker suppression in Virginia, because they're actually a lot more linked than people realize, we, we can see that Virginia history is a history of labor organizing. And in response to that, corporations and politicians have been very, very aggressive in trying to shut it down um, because that type of worker solidarity is threatening to people in power. Could you explain real quick what the worker suppression in Virginia has looked like in the past, um, like during the 20th century? Like yeah. what responses was Virginia having? So one of the sections of the history I find really fascinating is the 1880s here in Richmond, Virginia, which is where I'm based. So the 1880s were like a really, really active time for labor organizing by both black and white workers. And, um, and that's really important because it's 1880s Virginia, right? So like, um, so, um, but basically workers in tobacco factories and printing offices and flower companies, they organized together in a series of different worker power campaigns. And a lot of them used boycotts as a critical tool for those campaigns. And then because, you know, we can't have workers being powerful um, in, in the eyes of people in power in response to, to those types of really impactful worker organizing campaigns that were successful. I want to be really clear, like they got shorter hours, higher, higher wages. They stopped using convict labor for like barrel making. That was something that was really important to like workers at the time and stuff. So the Virginia Supreme Court of Appeals declares that the right to boycott was incompatible with prosperity, peace, and civilization of the country. And that's like, we quite frankly, like that's not a coincidence that you're calling the, the tool that was like really effective at the time incompatible with like um, society. So that's one of them. Um, so you also mentioned the um, 
origins of the ban on public sector collective bargaining in Virginia, if you look at that point in history, it's like, okay, they banned it. But if you look just before that, it's in response to Black nurses and hospital workers at the University of Virginia organizing for better working conditions. In Charlottesville, 1949, 28 Black women employed at the University of Virginia Hospital stage a walkout after the hospital superintendent refuses to accept their petition for higher wages. And then in 1944, in Charlottesville, Black men employed as orderlies at UVA threaten to walk out unless the hospital immediately reduces their workday from 12 hours to 8 And then um, UVA president Newcomb at the time and Dr. Lentz hurriedly secure support within four days from the Board of Visitors and the Virginia State Director of Budget for the eight-hour work rule. So they responded real fast to that, right? And then 1945, the Black employees at UVA formally organized themselves into a union called Local 550 of the State, County, and Municipal, Municipal Workers of America. And then... After all of that happens in 1946, that's when the prohibition on public sector collective bargaining happens. So like you have this series of really powerful wins by both women and men, right? And they are that are black workers at the University of Virginia Hospital. And the more organized they get, the more threatening they become to people in power. And then you have the, the, the resulting prohibition later on. Mel Borja is the Worker Power Policy Analyst at the Commonwealth Institute. We turn next to David Broder, who's president of SEIU Virginia 512. He talked with Alana Bittner about how collective bargaining is changing in Virginia. I think what happened in 2020 is that Virginia's politicians finally caught up to where Virginia's workers have always been. Right? What happened is Obviously, there was a moment where workers worked very hard. So union members, not yet union members, community members, worked tremendously hard to elect politicians who shared their values. And that meant a democratic trifecta, but this was not the old Democrats, right? This was really about electing a democratic trifecta, but within there, electing Democrats who were going to fight for workers in the House and in the Senate. And I think that that was the moment. And then workers really leaning in, being at the General Assembly every single day to make sure that we passed a bill that really brought Virginia in line with the rest of the country. And let me just say that that law was probably the most consequential piece of labor law reform that we've seen in Virginia. And at the same time, was the smallest of first steps that could have been taken, right? Both of those things are true. What it did was it repealed the ban on collective bargaining for county and city workers, but it leaves the ban in place for state workers, for state higher ed workers, for so many frontline workers, particularly black and brown women who provide essential jobs with public funding, like home care workers and child care workers. And so we have a lot more work to do to make sure that all public employees, that all workers have the right to join a union if they so choose. It also was a, the smallest of first steps because it didn't create any kind of state labor board or any kind of state standards. What it allowed was localities to opt in, but to create their own standards for bargaining. And so we have a really piecemeal system of collective bargaining that a future General Assembly 
regardless of party, is going to have to come back and fix and set some standards. I was curious if you could like map out for us or kind of give an overview of which localities and like specifically the localities that your union has been involved with, which one have have been like adopting these ordinances and for which public sector employees, for people who don't know? What we've seen since the law took effect in 2021 has been really nothing short of absolutely historic. We have seen tens of thousands of workers organize and demand collective bargaining rights and pass meaningful collective bargaining ordinances and resolutions across Virginia, in Arlington, in Alexandria, in Fairfax, in Loudoun, in Prince William County, in Richmond City, in Charlottesville, there for county and city workers. We've also seen educators and school support staff do tremendous organizing and put pressure on school boards to pass collective bargaining resolutions in Arlington, in Prince William and Richmond. Mm. And I'm curious, like in these localities, are you seeing frequently localities deciding independently to adopt these ordinances or is it more likely through pressure and proposals submitted by unions and workers? We have seen in locality after locality, elected officials are responding to worker demand. And it has taken a lot of effort in deep blue localities It has taken really an extraordinary effort, I'd say, of workers educating elected officials, pressuring elected officials, bringing the full weight of public support to bear to get done what I think everybody wants to get done, but to pass really meaningful labor uh, reform. It wouldn't happen without unprecedented worker involvement. One of the things I wanted to discuss is like some of the hurdles that come up when this law leaves so much of the rules and frameworks of these ordinances up to localities to decide locality by locality. Um, And Prince William County is like a good example of this. Since its collective bargaining ordinance was um, a lot less expansive than neighboring counties, is that correct? Am I reading that correctly? Um, Yeah. Um, I guess my question real quick, like what as a member of a union and workers, unions and workers have to expect back to be prepared for when there's so much leeway in how these ordinances can be written. Yeah, that's absolutely right. The law right now allows each locality to write collective bargaining frameworks however they want. And that's a problem because collective bargaining is not an on-off switch. There are some key principles of what makes collective bargaining meaningful. And from the very beginning, workers were clear. They didn't want any old collective bargaining ordinance. They wanted meaningful collective bargaining. And there are a whole number of proponents of what makes something meaningful. Lawyers could tell you all about it. What I would say are just some key components is it means the right to bargain over pay, benefits, and working conditions. It means the right to talk to your coworkers about the union free of the fear of retaliation. And it means that everybody is included right? You don't leave out some workers. It's an inclusive union. Everyone has those rights. And that's what collective bargaining looks like in the private sector under federal labor law. So this is clearly the national standard. And yet, sadly, what we've seen in county after county, locality after locality, we see senior management trying to hold on to their power and writing incredibly narrow ordinances that simply don't meet the national standard and don't meet the standard of meaningful collective bargaining. And so what you saw in Prince William County 
was then pass a collective bargaining ordinance. Now I should say they passed it and then immediately directed staff to do a 90 day review to make changes. And I am very optimistic that Chair Wheeler and the Prince William County Board of Supervisors will come back early next year and make these fixes to be in line with every other locality. Because what they passed would not allow for bargaining over working conditions. And having been through a pandemic, still in a pandemic, the idea that workers, frontline workers, wouldn't be able to bargain over safe workplaces, over access to PPE is unconscionable. It also leaves out hundreds, maybe up to a thousand of part-time non-benefited workers, those workers who need it most, and those workers who are disproportionately black and brown and immigrant workers. And so Prince William County needs to come back and make these fixes. The directive that Supervisor Kenny Bodie passed was unambiguous that that is what they want to do. And so we're very hopeful that they will come back in the new year and pass an ordinance in line with every other locality. I'm curious also, these the pattern of how this falls on party lines. Like, Do you feel like the localities that are adopting these ordinances, are they mostly blue-leaning localities, or is it beginning to spread beyond party lines and what you've seen? And how do you... How do you think about that? I would say the desire by workers to come together and form a union and bargain goes far beyond party lines. Within our own union, we have Republicans, independents, Democrats, people who have no desire to be at all involved in politics, coming together, wanting a seat at the table. So I think on the worker organizing front, this isn't about party at all. Unfortunately, in terms of local elected officials, we've not yet seen any Republican majority take up collective bargaining. And in locality after locality, we've seen almost every Republican vote against collective bargaining. And I I think that's incredibly unfortunate. I don't think that aligns with the traditional values of the Republican Party. I don't think that aligns with conservative values. But I will also say, Alana, that being a deep blue county or locality is not enough to guarantee collective bargaining. And we continue to see senior management in every county do all that they can to hold on to the power that they have. And so it is really incumbent that elected leaders at the local level really need to live their values and say, in our community, we support working people. We support working people having a seat at the table. And I think, you know, that's exactly what folks like Fairfax County Chair Jeff McKay or Loudoun County Chair Phyllis Randall have done. Mm, Yeah. And that's kind of touches on, I was curious, like, what was maybe an example of a locality that you think their collective bargaining ordinance has worked out really well and has been meaningful? I mean, you're definitely asking me to get in trouble if I start pitting localities against each other. That being said, I think it's very clear that Fairfax County has absolutely led the way on the question of workers' rights, passing the strongest collective bargaining ordinance that I have seen in the Commonwealth. And I think Chair McKay was a real leader on this, sent very clear, strong signals on this. The rest of the Board of Supervisors, except for Supervisor Pat Harity, all unambiguously in support of collective bargaining and really made sure that they passed an ordinance, not just to pass any ordinance, but they passed an ordinance that had everybody in that really allowed people to bargain over the pay benefits and working conditions that they need that would allow them to talk about the union, 
that would allow them to live lives of dignity. And, and I think you've also seen them lead on passing wage theft and prevailing wage ordinances as well. They understand beyond any one piece of legislation that if Fairfax County is going to remain a strong community, it needs to be a place where working people can thrive. And I think that's the kind of leadership that we need to see in every locality. I'm kind of wrapping up the end of my questions here, but I was curious, where do you and the SEIU Virginia 512, like, where do you hope to go from here? What are your eyes set on next? What I hear from our members every single day is what they want. What victory looks like to them is every single worker having a seat at the table. We live in a rigged economy right now where hard work doesn't lead to good results. So every day I hear from our union members that, yes, they want a seat at the table, but they want their kids to have a seat at the table. They want their family members and neighbors to have a seat at the table. And so what comes next is ensuring that. And that looks like a couple of things. That means, first and foremost, making sure that every single worker has the right to join a union. So expanding the collective bargaining law so that every public employee has the same right that private sector employees have right now. It also means holding big corporations accountable because while private sector workers have the right to join a union, what we see every day are private sector workers being harassed, targeted, fired for their union involvement. And very specifically, we want to name Starbucks and Amazon as some of the worst offenders. So we need to make sure that everyone has the right to join a union. We need to make sure that all corporations are held accountable for their union busting activity and simply that hard work is valued in this country. So that's what comes next. David Broder is president of SEIU Virginia 512. Stay with us during a short break. You're listening to Bold Dominion, a state politics explainer for Changing Virginia. You can visit us online at bolddominion.org. If you've ever had a question about state politics, well, let us know. Maybe we'll do a show about it. You can shoot us an email at bolddominion@virginia.edu. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever fine podcasts are served up. Go ahead and subscribe, and leave us a nice review while you're there. Bold Dominion is a member of Virginia Audio Collective, online at virginiaaudio.org. You can check out all the podcasts from the collective, from science to history to music to community affairs. We amplify the voices of people in our community and help them tell stories that matter. You can listen and subscribe at virginiaaudio.org. And we're back. To wrap up our look into collective bargaining around the state, we're talking now with Vernon Laketi. He's president of the Albemarle Education Association. And he gets into the nuts and bolts of how they're organizing for a collective bargaining ordinance in Albemarle County public schools. A big thing that I was talking with teachers about was making sure that we had basically the ability to have contracts that actually were legally enforceable that we had a say in. We kind of realized this is something that almost every other state had for their public sector workers. So what made Virginia different than all the other states? Well, we also know a little bit about labor history in Virginia and other states uh, nearby, like North Carolina and South Carolina, where, especially in education, they didn't really have the same amount of labor protections as other states did. So we figured it's a good stepping stone to kind of address those issues and make sure uh, we can help out the workers that are helping out our children. 
Mm. And I'm curious for like, for people who don't know or listeners who don't really understand the process, could you break down what that process of organizing for collective bargaining looked like in the schools? Like how did you get teachers on board, grow support? Sure. So we formed organizing committees to basically have people in every single school to kind of discuss how they want to break things down, make sure people understand what the process would be, which is just negotiating what goes into our contracts. And for the law, in order to have your board or city council or whoever, whichever executive authority decide whether to approve or not approve an ordinance for bargaining, you have to demonstrate you have over 50% of an employee work group saying that they want collective bargaining. We did this through authorization cards. So we organized people in every single work site to start talking with people, see where they're at on it, see what things they would like to see improved. And having that conversation, well, great, we can do this through bargaining right here. That's something where we can democratically come together and tell the board uh, here's what we would like to see in our contracts and want to make sure that these are legally enforceable. So for us in this process, we yeah, had our uh, bargaining team organizing, getting people in every single work site involved. And then we did a big push from February to uh, March last year at the 30 plus work sites in Albemarle County Public Schools to get people to sign authorization cards. And we were successful in that push. By the time we submitted our resolution to the school board for collective bargaining, we had over 69% of teachers or those classified as teachers sign an authorization card for collective bargaining. Over 70% of school bus drivers signed that authorization card for collective bargaining. Over 80% of school nurses signed their authorization card. For counties, staff as a whole, like including everybody, uh, we had over 50% of support for bargaining rights for everybody in the county, no matter what job that they were. So submitted that to the school board in March of 2022. And then according to law, the school division or whichever executive body has a certain amount of time to vote to adopt or not adopt that resolution for bargaining. In May, the school board voted for a motion to not adopt our resolution on a vote of four to two. And they gave reasons for why they were not adopting the resolution. They made specifically to say at that time, because they felt the law, there's a lot of reasons. The law was too vague. The law didn't give them the ability to do tax revenue for this sorts of funding that they wanted to focus more on their strategic plan to retain work staff instead. So there was a litany of reasons that they gave for that. But at the same time, despite those things, I feel what we were asking for did not really conflict at all with the reasons against that. Yeah, I'm wondering, could you explain further? You said like you believe that reason, uh, your proposal did not conflict with the reasons against it. Could you give a couple examples of what you mean by that? Sure thing. So a big thing in the strategic plan is all about retaining and recruiting teachers. And as we know, uh, we've had Massive amount of sub shortages, massive amount of teacher shortages, extremely uh, massive amount of school bus driver shortages. One of the key things <laughs> for why we believe people are not getting involved in education is because, well, it's incredibly difficult. It's incredibly challenging. There might not be the same amount of protections to help you in that job, especially if the contract can be changed at a moment's notice. And for example, if people are going to determine where they want to teach, most likely they would probably choose a place where they have a say in what goes into their contract versus not have a say and where it goes in the contract. Currently, the Charlottesville City Schools, their school board is actually working with their local labor union to form 
a joint resolution for bargaining right there. So once again, that'll show a big kind of difference between the county schools and the city schools. One side is working together with them on this process to make this happen. The other side is not. And if I'm a new teacher and I see a job opening someplace, I know which one I'd probably be wanting to go towards. Mm, yeah, no, that makes sense. I feel like something that I also find pretty interesting about this is how the Albemarle County School Board cited the law being too vague as a reason to adopt it. That's kind of an innate flaw within this law is that it leaves so much up to localities and school boards. Um, I don't know. That wasn't really a question, but I don't know if you have anything to add on that. Well, a big thing is, and as a teacher, I can tell you a lot of teachers, we're given a lot of things that are big duties to do all the time. And we find a way to make it work. And if this is something that instead is coming from the central office or coming from the state, but coming from the ground up, from your staff saying this is what they want to see happen, to be able to just dismiss that and say not at this time, while at the same time we're experiencing shortages in all these different areas, it, it seems to me that that conflicts with their strategic plan of trying to recruit and retain their workforce. Something else I found interesting is how the Virginia School Board Association had kind of actively lobbied against the bill for collective bargaining when it was being under consideration in the General Assembly. But then at the same time, Albemarle County in general, it leans it leans blue. It's generally liberal. Like you would maybe assume that it would that the school board would be pro collective bargaining if that was brought up, especially considering with Charlottesville. I mean, going in, what considering that landscape, what did you expect the response to be from the school board? Uh, I expected if we had over a supermajority of the workforce saying that they wanted this, that they would respect that. Uh, the other thing, too, with the VSBA, them always being against it, but I also know a lot of our school board policies come from the Virginia School Board Association. I remember uh, the VSBA, I want to say almost a year ago, actually, was going to have a conference about how to not have collective bargaining in the school systems, and we held a rally about that. Uh, the downtown mall uh, almost yeah a year ago today. And since then, I think they've taken a different tone publicly on what they want to do in regards to bargaining and everything like that. But I'm not somebody that goes to those meetings or anything like that. So I don't know what their take on it is now. But when you have an organization like that actively lobby against this piece of legislation, once it passes and once it's starting up, then trying to hold conferences on trying to avoid a vote on bargaining and everything, that definitely did rub us the wrong way and kind of have us curious about why is the Virginia School Board Association so against this sort of thing? After the down vote on the collective bargaining in Albemarle County Public Schools, like where does the Albemarle Education Association want to go from here? What's the plan of action moving forward? Sure. Well, a big thing is we are going to be resubmitting our resolution for collective bargaining. We're still encouraging our organizing committee and our building reps, our worksite reps, to continue to communicate this to all the workers in the county to let them know, hey, we're still going to be pushing on this because we've seen the impact now of not having it. Bus driver shortages have been massive, and the school board thankfully has changed the pay scale for the bus drivers in the meantime since then. So they do understand the realization that, well, if we want to uh, you know, retain and recruit more individuals, we actually need to do what they're asking us to do. We'd like them to go a further beyond and have bus drivers especially involved in that process. I mean, for a lot of them, having the extra pay is great, but the other thing is having a say in what goes into their contract, making sure that their contract specifies their roles and responsibilities and not necessarily a supervisor all the time.
We're also really, really encouraged by the process from the city and giving their municipal workers collective bargaining. So this is also an example to Albemarle Executive Authority that this is possible in this area because, like I said, city municipal workers just got it. We're also encouraged that the School Board of Charlottesville City and the Charlottesville Education Association are working together to formulate their own collective bargaining resolutions. That is more evidence that bargaining is possible in this area with unions and the executive authorities. And yeah, we're basically going to be using that motivation and being in solidarity with them to continue our push to help explain and educate to our board members, this is possible. We can make it happen, but we've got to be willing to work together because the ultimate goal is to help out working conditions for our public sector educational workers. And a big tagline we keep on saying is that, hey, our working conditions are the students' learning conditions. And this is the most important thing that we want to have professional trained workforce be there to educate, feed, transport, and support our students. And in order to have this, you got to make us part of the process for this because we're the ones on the ground. We can tell you what we need in order to continue to do our jobs well. That was Vernon Lichty of the Albemarle Education Association. Many thanks to him, as well as David Broder and Mel Borja for speaking with us today. My name's Nathan Moore, and I'm the host of Bold Dominion. Our show this week was produced and edited by Alana Bittner. You can find us online at bolddominion.org. And don't forget to subscribe. It's just a click away. Mm-hmm.